Welcome to Parkview. People are looking for God. Uh, it's the point of what I'm doing. You'll figure it out as I talk along the way. People are looking for God. Heard about this drunk guy who was uh, walking through the woods one day and he stumbled upon a Baptist church that was doing baptisms in the, in the river. And, he, you know, he just stumbled in. He was really, really wasted. He just stumbled into the river and uh, the preacher looked at him and smelled his breath. He said, son, do you want to find Jesus? And the man said, yes, I do. So the preacher said, well, I'm going to baptize you. So he baptized him in the water. He brought him back up again. He said, did you find Jesus? And the drunk said, no, I didn't. This preacher said, well, let's try it again. And he baptized him again. He brought him up again. He did, did you find Jesus? And the man said, no, I didn't. He said, well, let's try it again. And he held him under this time. You know, his legs were kicking up and the bubbles were coming. And finally he pulled him up and the man was gasping. And he said, I want to ask you one more time. Did you find Jesus? And the drunk said, no. Are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> People are looking for Jesus everywhere. Sometimes they're so eager to find Jesus, they find him in weird places. I have this book called Look, It's Jesus. So this is a book of all the weird places people have found Jesus. Like this guy found him in his frying pan. I mean, check that out. That's frying pan Jesus, an Australian cook found him. An Australian also found banana Jesus. How weird is that? Oh yeah, it's full of them. How about toast Jesus? He's right there. I mean, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Tortilla Jesus? Maria Rubio says she found Jesus in her tortilla she was cooking one day. This is my favorite. Kit Kat Bar Jesus. Look, he's right in there, man. I mean, doesn't that... She said, I took a bite of the chocolate bar and then I saw Jesus. How about chicken breast Jesus? David Martin found this one in an Italian restaurant. Jesus is right... That is kind of spooky. This is one of my favorites. Pierogi Jesus. She was cooking pierogies on Palm Sunday, and that's when she found this one. This has nothing to do with Jesus. I just think it's funny. How about Mother Teresa's cinnamon roll? Come on. They call it the nun bun. That's funny right there. That's the, that, that was discovered in, the, in my daughter's favorite uh, coffee shop down in Nashville. It's hilarious. How about the shower Jesus? Now, uh, yeah, he's right there. He's looking in. That's kind of scary. He's looking in your tub. But... This guy sold that mold on eBay for $2,000. I'm not making this up. Somebody bought that for $2,000. People are looking for Jesus. And this, of course, is my favorite. That's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. People are looking for Jesus everywhere. That's why I picked this series back up. I started it a year ago, and I wanted to pick it back up because, and I'll explain along the way. The problem is this wall back here, okay? The reason people can't find Jesus is not because he's not appearing in their food properly. The reason they can't find Jesus is because we have built a wall. I started this series ago, What Would Jesus Hate? And I know some of you are like, hate, wait a minute, Jesus didn't hate anything. Oh, yeah, he did. He hated some behaviors. He didn't hate any people, but he hated behaviors. God hated, in the Bible, in Amos, God says, I hate your, dis I hate your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. There are some things that God hates. Not people, but there are some attitudes, some behaviors that make God angry. Jesus didn't hate people, but he hated their actions. I am a father. I never hated my children. But I hated some things they did, didn't you? Like the Dixie Chick face, for example. I mean, I hated that, Okay. Jesus never hated anyone, but he hated some behaviors, and you need to grasp a hold of this. Because for a lot of you, your image of Jesus is like the banana Jesus, or the Kit Kat Jesus, or it's like this picture. You grew up with this wimpy Jesus thing going on in your head, right? You grew up with a wimpy Jesus, and you would have a really hard time understanding that Jesus got angry. 
If, if wimpy Jesus was in your life, if wimpy Jesus is who you worshipped all of your life, then you don't get the fact that one day he walked into the temple and grabbed a bunch of cords and made a whip out of them and started popping people and telling them to get out of the temple because he was so angry. You would have a hard time understanding that when the, chil- when the disciples kept the children away from Jesus that he got so indignant is the exact word. He got so indignant that he said, if you don't knock it off, you'd be better off with a two-ton stone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Wimpy Jesus doesn't do that, right? Wimpy Jesus doesn't call people names like brood of vipers and unmarked graves and son of hell. He called people son of hell. You understand this? You can be like, you know, Will Ferrell and say, well, I like praying, uh, you know, my Jesus. You pray, when it's your turn, you pray to whatever Jesus you want. But it doesn't work that way. There is no wimpy Jesus. Jesus got angry. And whenever anybody gets angry, don't you think you ought to pay a little bit more attention? Guys, don't you know some things that, your wives, that make your wives angry and you realize you shouldn't do that anymore? Right? You shouldn't push that button? I remember a name that I called my father once growing up. And then... I never did it again. <clears throat> to this day, I don't remember his favorite cereal or, you know, his TV show, but I know one name that he definitely did not like to be called, and I made a mental note of it, okay? And I think we do that all the time if you think about it. I mean, there's, what would Jesus do is great, okay? What would Jesus do? But let's pay attention to the stuff that made Jesus angry. And what is it that made Jesus angry? It was never the sinners. It was never the people. It was always the actions of the religious It was always the actions of the religious that built a barrier that got in the way of his love. Here's my simple statement. What Jesus would hate is anything that gets in the way of his love. Maybe that'll help you, okay? Yes, Jesus is love. He's the personification of love. So naturally, if he is love, logic would tell us that he would hate anything that gets in the way of his love. That's the series that we've been thinking about. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been doing. Sheldon Van Alken said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness, their wholesomeness, their aliveness. Guess what he says is the best argument against Christianity? Christians, when they're somber, joyless, self-righteous, smug, narrow, repressive, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Dallas Willard says, spirituality, wrongly understood or pursued, is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. I've got to say it again. Spirituality, wrongly understood or pursued, is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. And if you really stop to think about Jesus and his ministry, a lot of what he ended up doing <clears throat> was trying to correct spirituality that was wrongly understood or pursued. The truth is, the drunks in the river found Jesus. The truth is, The prostitutes found Jesus. The tax collectors found Jesus. The sinners all found Jesus. The religious people couldn't find Jesus. And the people that tried to go through religion couldn't find Jesus either because they had built a wall. And it breaks my heart. My premise in this series, and and hopefully a book, um, is to help the church to try to figure out the things that we're doing to get in the way. Not Parkview, but the church in general. What is it that we're doing that's getting in the way of helping people find Jesus? Because it breaks my heart, and I know that it breaks God's heart when his children get in the way of, him, of his children coming to him. 
our brothers and sisters. Jesus, our, our, our theme story around here, if you don't know, if you're new to Parkview, our theme story around here is the prodigal son. I believe it's the best story Jesus ever told. I believe it's the foundation of who God is. God is this heavenly father, and the prodigal is the son who takes the money and runs off and goes and does wild, crazy things and turns around and decides to come home. Okay, And he turns around and tries, decides to come home, and he comes home, and when he gets home, he's ready to bow down and become a servant and say, I'm really sorry, I really messed everything up. But the father doesn't care about any of that. The father throws open his arms, he goes and kills the fatty calf, he has a big feast, he has a big party, and every, everybody's celebrating. Which is the part of the story we mostly remember. But there's another part of the story, and the reason he told the story is because those people that were building those walls, those represented the older brother. And the older brother was out in the field. And when the older brother found out about what had gone on, he came back home and he was mad. How could you welcome this guy home? He, he, he didn't go through the right system. He didn't do the right thing. He did all the wrong things. How could you welcome him home? And that's, that was the paradox of the church that was going on that Jesus was telling us about. The problem is, I believe if Jesus, if Jesus came to the 21st century, I believe if he came to, to today and he was sitting here on the steps teaching us the story of the prodigal son. It would go something like this. The prodigal ran away from home. He spent all his dad's money and he came home. And except instead of finding the older brother in the field, the older brother was in the driveway. And the older brother said, hey, 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 welcome back. Glad you're here. Now let's get some things straight. You owe dad this much money. You better come crawling, begging on your knees. You're going to be a servant. You don't deserve to be here. I can't believe what you've done. And starts going off on him. And the prodigal in Jesus' 21st century version story of this would have probably turned around and walked away. And that's what I see happening. That's what I see happening in Christianity all around us. Because we put this wall up in the driveway and people can't get home to the Father. Casey did a great job last week talking about the cleansing of the temple. I assigned him that one because I knew he would do a great job with it, and it's, it was a hard one. But he did a great job talking about the fact that the most prominent time Jesus got mad was the cleansing of the temple. And I believe there are a lot of people out there today doing the same thing in the 21st century that would make Jesus so mad that he actually would grab some whips and throw them out. People who are using his name and his father's temple to make a buck off the poor people who are trying desperately to get to him. He would not like that. He would hate that. So this week, I decided to talk about just some of the general barriers that keep people out of the kingdom. This topic was born out of a conversation with author and speaker Lee Strobel. When we had Lee here, I was talking to him about some things. And and we were talking about the creation-evolution debate. And I said, you know, Lee, I really feel bad about the way I handled that debate in my own life. When I started, uh, you know, I started learning intelligent design. I started learning some of these things. I went really gung-ho with it because I'm a gung-ho kind of guy. And I went really gung-ho with it. And I started studying it. And I started preaching it. And I wrote pamphlets. And, and I did all these kinds of things. And I said, you know, I really think as I look back on that, I did more harm than I did good. Because nobody's ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. And he said, you know what? I, I agree with you. That is a very tricky subject. And you got to understand, Lee wrote, one of the best books on creationism I think you could find. The Case for the Creator. You ought to read it. I mean, he interviewed a lot of scientists. He brought them all together. But even he agreed with me. He said, if I had a chance to do it all over again, I think I would do my book differently. Because instead of arguing, we need to show people the love of Christ. We don't need to build another barrier. We need to show them who Jesus is by our actions. This topic was born out of that. We sometimes head down this path um, trying to defend God or our version of God, so strongly that we end up alienating the people that are supposed to be coming in the first place. What would Jesus say to that? 
He would say, son of hell, listen, woe to you teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You are, Jesus, this, is, this is wimpy Jesus, right? Kit Kat Jesus, he's going, you are the son of hell and you're making little double hell boys. That's what you're doing, okay? What Jesus was trying to say is, you religious leaders, what you're doing is not sharing God, you're proselytizing. You're trying to get everybody to agree with your version of what the Bible looks like. Instead of allowing them to come to God and them to have a relationship with God, you're the elder brother, you're sitting out in the driveway, and you're doing this. The verse before this, Jesus says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. The Greek verb indicates here that people are trying to get into the kingdom of heaven. They're trying to get over to the Father, but they can't get in because these people have built walls. Son of hell. How are we doing in the 21st century? Same thing. We had uh, an atheist here a couple of years ago. I did a little interview with him on, on stage, Hemet. He, uh, he was an atheist who was writing a book, and he was traveling around to different churches. And a uh, really good guy. He calls himself the friendly atheist, and I call myself the friendly Christian. And so we got together, and we had this little uh, dialogue on stage. And, and he wrote about his experiences, and he wrote a great part about Parkview, and it was all really good. But in the book, this phrase kept haunting me, kept coming back to me. This is an atheist, a confirmed atheist, and to my knowledge, still a confirmed atheist. Here's what he said. As I read Christian books, I spent months attending an amazing variety of churches in different parts of the country, and I kept running across a consistent and troubling truth about American Christianity. It is clear that most churches have aligned themselves against non-religious people. It is clear that most churches have aligned themselves against non-religious people. And by adopting this stance, he said, Christians have turned off the people I would think they would want to connect with. This is an atheist. He understands what we should be doing better than we do. The combative stance, his words, not mine, the combative stance I've observed in many churches and for many Christians on an individual level is an approach that causes people to become apathetic and even antagonistic towards religion as a whole. By displaying a negative attitude towards anyone outside their community, people of faith make enemies of those who don't believe the same God they do. Son of hell. That's ridiculous. Let me, let me uh, talk about the top one. I, 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 I put the top one up there for a reason because... I, please, you've got to understand, I'm guilty of all these and there's a whole bunch more we could have put on there. I'm guilty of all of them. But the top one was a, was a kicker. The top one's a kicker anyway, because it, it, I mean, it's a big debate right out there. Science and faith, you know, the whole thing. It all started when somebody put a fish on the back of their car. The first time somebody put a fish on the back of their car and they wrote ichthus on it. You remember when they used to write ichthus on it? Which is an acronym for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. But it looks like kiss this and nobody really understood it, so nobody cared, right? Until someday, one, one day when finally somebody said, hey, I'm not going to be subversive about this. I'm going to actually write Jesus in my fish. And so we have the Jesus fish, right? Some of you have them on your car. And you got the Jesus fish and we're like, we believe in Jesus and we're Christians and we want the world to know. Well, the atheists on the other side who believe in evolution decide, you know what, that we're not good with that, so we're going to make fun of you, and we're going to come up with a Darwin fish. So you've seen the Darwin fish around every once in a while, right? Because the fish grew legs, right? Because he evolved, and, and we're going to do Darwin. Well, the Christians on the other side, not to be outdone, they came up with a truth fish eating the Darwin fish. 
Unbelievable, right? Well, we got the truth fish eating the Darwin fish, right? Uh, well, atheists aren't going to be outdone. So they got the dinosaur eating the truth fish eating the Darwin fish. And here we are in the enlightened 21st century with people yelling at each other on the back of their cars. And how many people got saved because of that debate? How many people have ever read a bumper sticker or looked at the back of the car and said, Thank you, Jesus, I'm coming home? Never happened. Did it? No, of course not. And the, the problem is, the problem is, basically all we're doing is yelling at each other. And does yelling at each other help? Let's try it for just a minute, okay? I believe, I want this side over here to, we're going to talk about communion for just a minute. Communion tastes great, doesn't it? You are the taste great people because it's great grape juice from Costco. Tastes great over here, okay? You, because it's a small cup, so it's less filling, all right? All right, let's try this. What do you think of communion? Is that helpful? Does that feel good to you? Okay? Now when it comes to communion, you're going to be all jacked up, aren't you? You're going to be like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be, this is holy. This, uh, don't do that, okay? Put it out of your mind. But do you see what we just did? That little, that, little, that little microcosm of what's going on in the world is so not helpful. That is son of hell right there. Nobody was ever argued into the kingdom of God. I learned this the hard way. Again, when I, when I started studying intelligent design and studied, started finding out that there were some incredible scientists out there that were studying DNA and they were studying some of these things and it was pointing them to God, I went crazy with it. I wrote pamphlets for my kids' teachers. I, I preached on it. I did all this kind of stuff. And inevitably, when I would get in a conversation with somebody who was not a believer, it would turn into an argument. For some reason, the atheists really are hung up on the creationism thing. They really hate that. And for some reason, when I would get, start talking, instead of saying, hey, let's talk about God and what God is like and, and who he's supposed to be and what his people are supposed to be, we'd always digress into this argument about creation and science. Until one day, I, I had this friend who was coming to the, to the Lord. He was starting to you know, figure out his faith, but he was, had this really unfortunate situation that he was really stinking smart. He had a Ph.D., he was fun and had a Ph.D. I mean, you know, what, what kind of an oxymoron is that? And I love being around this guy. And he was really, really smart. And so what happened is as, as I was trying to tell him about Jesus and I was trying to help him understand faith, I would keep getting mired into this little stupid debate about whether we were created, you know, everybody according to his own kind. And please, you've got to understand, I believe the book of Genesis. I believe that every, everything was created according to his kind. But he grew up in science, and he went through science, all that thing, and he's trying to figure out. And finally, one day, he's sitting across the lunch table from me. And he says, Tim, I'm starting, to get this, I'm starting to get this God thing, but do I have to buy creationism to be a Christian? And it was a son of hell moment for me right there. And you know, in my heart, I was like, man, I, I wish you would, because I really, I really believe that God did it this way. But I started to realize, this is not a salvation thing. This is not, we're not going to get to heaven. It's going to be like Monty Python, answer me these questions three, how did the world begin? It's not going to be like that. We're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, come on in. You were all wrong. It was aliens. You know, whatever. <clears throat> you never know. What I started to realize is that, that the more that I got into my opinions about something, the more things got messed up. 
But as I've got mired down in this unsolvable argument, we missed the opportunity to help somebody find God. And nobody was ever argued into the kingdom of God. Science and faith are not enemies. I love, we have a lot of scientists. We have professors of science in our congregation. I love it. We should go out and study all the science we can because I believe the more we study science, the more we see evidence for God. That's what the Bible says. I do believe that. I believe that with all of my heart, okay? But, but, but here's the deal. As soon as I start arguing that, as soon as I throw that up in, and as soon as I start attaching my opinion to something like that, then all of a sudden I run a huge risk. I run a risk not unlike the church ran in the 1600s. Okay? Here's what happens when I attach my opinion. Even if it's seemingly cut and dried in the Bible, if it's my opinion of the interpretation of that cut and dried thing in the Bible, guess what? That happened in the 1600s. In the 1600s, people used to believe that the Earth was the center of the world, right? The center of the universe, and the sun revolved around the earth. And after all, the Bible says the sun rises and the sun sets. The, the church said, this, the Bible says it, you know, I believe it, that settles it. The sun rises and the sun sets. Well, hello, that was in Psalms, and it was a metaphor, and we still say sunrise and sunset, but we know it's different. But in the church, in that day, you had to believe that the earth was the center of the universe, and the sun revolved around the earth, or you couldn't be a Christian, and when Galileo came along and said, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong, they said, forget you, you're out. And then Copernicus came along and said, hey, you know, I think Galileo was right. And then Newton came along with mathematics and said, you know what, Galileo and Copernicus were right. And all of a sudden, the whole rest of the world is going, what are we going to do? The church says this, but the truth says this. And now we're all messed up. And I believe in that period of time in the 1600s, that a whole lot of prodigals came to the door of the church and were turned away because they didn't know what to do with it. They were like Casey talked about last week. They were like the, the, you know, the Dorothy and the Scarecrow walking up and Toto pulling the curtain back and they were like, wait a minute, who is this God? How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It happened when we, when mankind, attached our interpretation and thought that our interpretation of God was the right one. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use our brains. I'm not saying that we shouldn't defend our faith. Of course, I, I mean, you've got to remember, this conversation started in my mind when I was talking to Lee Strobel, one of, the, one of the most intelligent apologists we have, one of the most intelligent people. He wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for the Creator, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter. He's got all these books where he's done a lot, and he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune who was an atheist. He was an atheist, and his wife became a Christian, and he decided he was going to study her out of it, and he studied himself into it. And, and that, that's who started this conversation. I think we should use our brains, but I think we should also muzzle our mouths. Peter, famous for foot and mouth disease, right? I mean, he's the one that's always, always speaking up, saying something dumb. Here's what Peter wrote later in his wiser years. But in your hearts, set a, and some of you know this verse, but you forgot the last part. But set apart in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. Some of you heard that one a lot. But there's a little bit more. But do this with gentleness and respect. Don't build a wall. Don't be a son of hell. Do it with gentleness and, and respect. We tell them about our hope. 
We tell them about Jesus. We tell them what Jesus has done for us, and we do it with gentleness and respect. Paul writes it. It's kind of the same thing. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone and not and able to teach and not resentful. Okay? One way or another, folks, what I want to have happen, and again, I've been guilty of all these, and I just told you about my science problem. What I want to not have happen is to get to heaven and for God to go, Harlow, why did you let your feeble brain get in the way of my children coming home? Because that's basically what I've done. Well, my understanding is this. And it got in the way. And that's sad. How about politics? Let's talk about some of these others. Would it surprise some of you Republicans that there were Democrats who actually believed in Jesus? <laughs> Would it surprise some of you Democrats that there were Republicans who actually did care about social justice? You know, what, what do we do? We go back and forth and we attach our little thing to it and people need to believe our way, right? How about another example? How about contemporary music or not contemporary music, right? I, I, I don't know. Does it matter? Of course not. If you attach your opinion to it, how about dressing for church? No, obviously, uh, if you're new, we're not real big about that around here. Uh, my opinion is Jesus was a 30-year-old carpenter. I want to make sure a 30-year-old carpenter feels comfortable coming in here. If you want to dress up for church, that's fine, but, but you don't need to. Well, wait a minute. That's not what I was taught. That, that's a, hold, hold on a second. How about drinking? I like drinking. I mean, I like talking about it. <laughs> Let's... <clears throat> Let's talk about drinking, because a lot of you grew up like I did, where drinking was considered a sin, right? Or, or at least it was not acceptable. If you were on Survivor, right, and they started talking about drinking, I mean, you're in trouble, right? But all this time, all the time I'm in Bible college, one of my friends from Bible college is sitting out there, they kept, t they kept telling us that we weren't supposed to drink, and they kept missing that whole part about Jesus turning water into wine. I didn't get it, you know? And so finally I had to start wrestling with this thing in my mind, and I came across a great verse where Jesus is saying, hey, you, he's talking to the Pharisees, he's saying, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites because you think this is wrong and you think this is wrong and you can't make up your mind. Listen to this. Jesus said in Luke 7, John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. Oh, so not drinking must be bad. But the Son of Man, Jesus is admitting right here that he eats and drinks. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Jesus is saying, quit judging those people who don't do this and quit judging the people that do do this because wisdom is proved right by her actions. And some of you shouldn't drink. Some of you are alcoholics. Some of you have alcoholism in your family. I, I don't know why God made the fermentation process, honestly. I've seen it screw up a lot of families, and some of you shouldn't. But the truth of the matter is, maybe some of you should. <laughs> maybe some of you should a lot more. Scratch that from the video. I mean, the health, you know, the health people are telling us a glass of red wine every day is good for your heart. What are we supposed to do with this? I don't care what you do with it. If you decide to drink, then don't be drunk because that is wrong and be responsible with it and be careful with it because it is dangerous and don't do the taste great, less filling thing. If you decide not to drink, God bless you, that's wonderful, then don't do the taste great, less filling thing and try to impose your opinions on everybody else because Jesus is saying, my cousin John was the greatest man born among men and he didn't do it and I'm here and I did do it and it doesn't really matter. You see how many of these things we do along the way? 
Someone sent me this animal rights activist <laughs> article. Um, I am an animal lover except for cats, and there are parts of the <laughs> there are parts of the animal rights movement that I really agree with, but they went to a biker rally to protest the wearing of leather. <laughs> Listen, I quote, something went horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Something went horribly wrong, said a still visibly shaken organizer of the protest. The organizer said the group of concerned animal rights activists were growing tired of throwing fake blood on old women wearing fur coats and decided to protest the annual motorcycle club event in hopes to, quote, show them our outrage at their wanton use of leather in their clothing and motorbike seats. In fact, said the organizer, motorcycle gangs are one of the biggest abusers of wearing leather. And we decided it was high time we let them know we disagree with them using it. Ergo, they should stop. Here's how police found one of them. Listen to me. I, I'm not saying there isn't a time. <laughs> That's just so funny. I'm not saying there's not a time for us to stand up for what's right. I'm not saying that there aren't times where we've got to cast our vote and we've got to do something, but that didn't help anybody. No motorcycle club member decided, oh yeah, you know, you're right, we shouldn't kill cows. I'm going to ride on Velcro seats from now on, you know? And nobody did that. Nobody didn't change anybody's mind because those kinds of things don't usually work. And there are all no cookie-cutter followers of Jesus Christ. That's just one of many barriers. I mean, look at some of these things. I mean, we, I talk about the race thing every once in a while. We don't even know we do it sometimes. Are we really so white that, that we can't invite everybody from every race in? I think we're getting better and better about that. But I have to keep asking myself over and over, have I thrown up a wall there? How about like gender? Some of you are just weirded out when a woman comes down the aisle passing a communion tray because you grew up with that other thing. All of these walls, all these things that we've done along the way, there's so many of them. And there's a couple here that I didn't turn around yet because honestly, if I would have had these turned around you might have left already, or you might have misunderstood where I was going with it, so I left them turned around here because I really wanted you to think about the fact that there are even some things that are cut and dried in the Bible. That we have, like, uh, you know, in the beginning God created. I mean, I, I, you know, you can believe a lot of different levels of that, but I believe that's in the Bible. How about this one? Views on abortion. I want you to know this church is pro-life. I want you to know I am pro-life. I believe that life begins in the womb. Life begins in conception. I believe that. And I believe that somebody needs to be doing something to change our laws. And I believe that those things need to happen. But I also want you to understand that if you are one of the 40% of the women in the average crowd who have had an abortion, or you are somebody who encouraged someone to have an abortion, that you are as welcome here as my children or my family. Or me. I want you to understand that. Because I'm not any better than you. Yes, I think there's some laws that need to change. Yes, I think we need to do something about it. But you're not going to be cast out of here because you don't agree with me on that one. Now I've got the real kicker here. Now we'll see how many people leave. How about sexual orientation? 
hang on, hang on, don't, don't, don't go anywhere yet. The Bible very plainly says that sex is in marriage and that marriage is one man and one woman for a lifetime. Very, very plainly. That's exactly the will of God. But I need you to understand, church, and I need you to understand out there that if you don't agree with that, that if you're struggling with this, if this is an issue for you, you are also welcome at this church. You are also welcome to come and find out about Jesus. Because those are the people, these are the people, we're all the people that Jesus hung out with. We're all the people that Jesus was all... I mean, Jesus... I mean, look at some of these things. I mean, you're like, oh, well, that sin is worse than my sin. Is it really? I mean, what was the worst sin that Jesus could have possibly been around in his day? Tax collectors and prostitutes. And who are the two sinner groups that were always named that Jesus was around? Tax collectors and prostitutes. I mean, basically what they were saying is whatever sin you could possibly think up, those people were around Jesus. They were comfortable with Jesus. This is how Jesus liked it. So in matters of opinion, does the prodigal brother or sister have to adhere to my viewpoint or my interpretation before I let them through the wall to get to the Father? No. In matters of absolute doctrine, do they have to fully understand or accept God's plan for sexuality or for children in the womb or for whatever else before they come home to the Father? No. Let me ask it another way. Did the prodigal son have to clean the pig slop off of his clothes and accept the fact that he screwed up royally and take responsibility for his actions before the Father welcomed him? No. That's not fatherhood. That's judgment. If my fathers ran away and became prostitutes on the streets of Chicago and I couldn't find them for years and finally one of you ran across them and said, hey, your mom and dad have been looking for you and they still love you, why don't you come home? If they came home, I would be the same father that's represented in the prodigal son. I would not make them go to a clinic and get tested. I would not give them the right act and tell them how wrong they were. I would open up my arms. I would open up their bedroom. I would bring them home. Now, there's a difference between guilt and consequences. I understand that. If they contracted a disease, there's nothing that you know, I could do to keep that from happening. And those of us who have lived in sin and understood sin know the consequences of sin. And that doesn't necessarily get taken away from when we come to the Father. But the love and the relationship and the grace comes to us immediately. One of the experts in the law... <clears throat> answered Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. And Jesus said, And you experts of the law, woe to you, because you load down people with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. We built a wall. And we're not going to do that. Jesus also said, I mean, he talked about this a lot, folks. Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, in case you don't get this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the big board that's sticking out of your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Not saying that we're not supposed to help our brothers and sisters out of sin. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying that we can make a prodigal turn around and come home. Some of you are in situations where you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? I had a woman come up last night and say, my son is a prodigal, but every time he comes home, he, makes, he, he causes havoc and he's abusive, and we finally had to get a restraining order. Am I supposed to let him come back home? No. Until they're ready to come home, there's nothing you can do about it. Until they're ready to accept the Father, there's nothing that you can do about it. But when they are, that's when grace kicks in. That's when we understand. Why did Jesus have to do this verse on judgment? Because that's how people see us. Right? I mean, who's the stereotypical Christians in TV? Maud and Ned Flanders is the answer on The Simpsons. I know most of you are more spiritual than that. Maud Flanders one time went to, in one episode, I should have got the clip, in one episode she went to Bible camp to learn to be more judgmental. Those were her words. <clears throat> Why is that funny? Because that's the stereotype. Why is that the stereotype? Because that's who we are. We're putting up these barriers. We're putting all these things in front of people so that they can't get to God. A Barna Research Group study showed that 87% of the young people outside the church between the ages of 18 and 35 think the church is judgmental. 87%. Now, in some cases, that's just not true. But in a lot of cases, it is. We're guilty of judgment. We're guilty of condemning We're guilty of being sons of hell. I'm guilty of it. And maybe you are too. When you need a helping hand from someone, again, there are people out there, they don't care. They're not ready to turn around. But when you're ready to come and find the Father, you don't need a hand of judgment. You don't need a hand of accusation. You need a hand of love and grace. And some of you are disagreeing with me right now. And I know that. Please just remember that one day this happened to Jesus. There was this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. In the act. I mean, they caught her in bed with the guy. And they brought her to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, they thought they had him. They didn't like Jesus because he called them sons of hell and stuff like that. You know, they didn't like him so much. They were trying to get rid of him. They said, oh, we got you, Jesus. What are, you, what are we going to do with this woman? Because the law says we should stone her. What do you say we should do? Because they thought if he lets him off, if he lets her off, then he's not following the law and he can't be the son of God. And, and if he stones her, he's not going to look like the son of God either. So we've got him. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. We should stone her. Whichever one of you is without sin... Let her fly. And if you don't know the story, the way, the way the story went is that they started to, they dropped their rocks and started to leave, very vividly portrayed in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ thing. They started to leave, they started to drop the rocks, the older to the younger, it says. The, you know, the wise ones are like walking away and the young ones are still there kind of going, oh yeah, I guess we can't do it either. And everybody walked away and Jesus turned to the woman who I'm imagining had her head down in shame and said, has no one, Jesus said, has no one condemned you? And she probably didn't even look up and said, no one, sir, knowing that he actually could throw the rock. He actually was without sin. He actually could throw the rock at her legalistically. And he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, then neither do I. Neither do I. Neither do I. I don't condemn you. The wall is down. Now you can have a relationship with God. And go and live a new way of life. And quit messing up your life with this sin. Go out there and do it the way that it's supposed to. Do you see the way it went? Because sometimes the church gets the order backwards. If people come to the church, they're like, 
Go and sin no more, and then neither will I condemn you. But that's not how Jesus did it. Jesus said, neither will I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I want to tell you something. No one is out of God's reach. God doesn't write off anyone, even though we do. And if a church could understand that, they would not be able to build enough buildings. They would not be able to add enough services. They would not be able to add enough sites because there are millions and billions of people out there who are waiting for the wall to come down so that they can get home. And that's who we are. I hope that that's who you are. I know I have to keep telling myself this over and over again. I have to keep coming back to this. But that's who we are. My daughter Rachel's <clears throat> really good at breaking down barriers. She's very smart, but <clears throat> very mature for her age. She went over to England um, for six months to work in a campus ministry over in England, just work with some uh, other students over there while she was in college. And she met this guy named Ash. I read this story in September. I want to give you the rest of the story. <clears throat> Ash is this brilliant young computer scientist who thrives on argument and logic. <clears throat> and he was an agnostic or an atheist, didn't really know. And he said, he's writing Rachel. I mean, she's back in Nashville and he's over there and they're writing back and forth. And he said, Rachel, I spent 22 years wishing people would take me at my word. And it really got to the point where people almost, almost always did. He said, if people questioned me, I would just bury them and they wouldn't try it again. He's a smart guy. But you don't challenge me for some reason. I mean, they've been having this dialogue about Jesus. He said, you don't challenge me. You don't tell me that I'm wrong. You just, I don't know, you just sit and wait for me to realize how stupid I am. <clears throat> and I do. I mean, look at Christianity. When I met you, I could have and have in the past given you hours of justification for why I hated religion. I could have reeled off a list and put some religious fanatics in their places. And had you come at me and challenged why I hated religion, why I pitied people who believed in God and Jesus in the resurrection, I would have put you in your place. And no offense, but I probably would have come, come away looking pretty smug for all my excellent arguments and rational victories of logic. But you didn't. The best analogy I can think of is kind of biblical, <clears throat> but I'm going to risk it. He said, it's like I spent years building these foundations to stand on. And people would come and they would say, hey, your foundations are looking pretty rubbish. And I'd throw stuff at them and tell them to bugger off because after all, they were standing in the mud themselves. And then you came along and instead of pointing fun at my rubbish foundations, you just walked over and stood on a rock. And I'm looking over and I'm thinking, hang on, she's not saying it. That rock required no building at all. And it looks even sturdier than my foundations. And you haven't got to tell me, because I can see the damn rock. Rachel went back over in February, here's the rest of the story, and baptized him in a river in Wales because Ash is now a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something, folks. If we can just get all this junk out of the way, there is no telling what God can do.
That's what it's supposed to be like. That's what's supposed to be happening. That's what God wants to have happen. It's supposed to be a relationship. It's supposed to be a way for you and God to be together without a bunch of stuff getting in the way. Like falling in love, like coming back home, like waiting for God to throw his arms around you in spite of all the junk that you've done to your life and saying, hey, I'm still here for you. How did Jesus come into the world? Did he come in judgmental? Did he come in with accusations? Did he come in with a sword? The only time he got angry. The reason that some of you don't like my title of what would Jesus hate is because you know that he didn't do that very often. The only time he got angry was with the people that were keeping him out. Jesus came into the world as the the son of love, as the son of God. And he came and he died on the cross so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's why the sinners were all hanging around him, and that's why the religious people didn't really like him so much. Why is that? Because the religious people never understood grace. Because the religious people kept thinking maybe they could be good enough to get to heaven. The sinners knew they had no chance. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they knew they had no chance. So when Jesus said, hey, come on in, they were all over it. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they thought, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can get in there on my own. So they wouldn't let anybody else in either. I want to tell you something today. I want you to come and meet Jesus, the the Jesus who is the one that had the right to throw the rock at you. He's the one that had the right to condemn you. But instead, he just went to the cross and he died for you. So that those sins that you deserve to be stoned for were paid for. The sins you did, the sins you do, the sins that you haven't even thought of yet, Jesus died for all of them. And all he asks of you is that you give him your allegiance, that you give him your life, that you give him your heart. And he will take care of all of it. His words on the cross were, it is finished. Father, forgive them. It's all done. All we have to do is say, okay, Turn around, I'm headed home. And Parkview will make sure that there are no older brothers in your way when you get here. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me for the times when I've gotten in the way. I can think of so many times that I've been in arguments with people about religion and all I was doing was building a barrier. Lord, you know I I believe strongly in the way the world ought to work and I believe strongly that unborn children ought to get the chance to live here on this earth and I believe strongly in the institution of marriage and I believe that sin is wrong and that it messes us up and that you told us all those things because you are the creator and you gave us the owner's manual for a reason you know I believe all that Lord and this church knows I believe all that but I also understand your heart and I also understand that you're the father not me I'm just one of the kids And my job is to help people get their way back home. And my job is to stay out of their way. Your job is to convict. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Your job is to do the cleaning up. My job is to stay out of the way. I pray that you'll help us as believers to understand that. Lord, I think that there are people in this room who 
maybe just for the first time today, understood what grace is really about. Maybe for the first time today, they realize, you know what, there have been a lot of churches that have done a lot of junk to me. There's been a lot of stuff that's gone on in history. But I can see the rock. And I think I'll go stand on the rock. And I just pray that you will open up their hearts right now as they're, as they're taking communion, maybe for the first time, as they're opening up their hearts to you and saying, okay, I see the rock. I'm going to go stand on the rock. I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. I'm going, to, I'm going to accept your forgiveness for my sins. I'm going to eat this bread. I'm going to drink this cup. And I'm going to understand what you did for me. And I'm going to pledge my life to you. Be with all of us as we do that now. In Jesus' name we pray.